Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Amen. Thank you so much. Beautiful. Well, if you will, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. I'm starting a series today called Classic Sermons, and as I shared with you, I'll try to get this working. As I shared with you, um, over the holidays, I was at uh, a New Year's Eve service in, at my wife's home church in Tifton, Georgia, and for some reason, I started thinking about this. And I believe the Lord led me to do it. And so the next, I don't know, five or six weeks, I want to recount for you some of the, some of the classic messages that have been preached over the last 200 years. Now, obviously there are a few problems with this that I didn't think about. Number one, in 1900 and 19, they thought differently and spoke differently and had uh, a different culture than we do today. For instance, the shortest message that I found for today is 55 minutes. The longest version is an hour and 15 minutes. And so, so that's, that's the first problem. The second problem is the wording that was used then is drastically different than today. For, for instance, do you know what a, uh, an adder is? It's a snake. Okay, so you'd know that. Over here, they ain't going to have a clue what I'm talking about. Uh, adder is a poisonous snake, a viper, uh, usually found in, in Europe, small. And so, so what I want to do is I want to begin where Dr. Lee, or actually I don't think it was a doctor, where R.G. Lee started, and I want to end where he finished. And then in the middle, I'm just going to f- follow a loose remix. So we're going to call this Classic Sermons Remix. A remix simply means you get liberty to do whatever you want to do. You can just title the name, right? All right, so this is Payday Sun- Someday from R.G. Lee. A little bit of background. And I put, all of the, I put an article on our Facebook page for uh, First Baptist that has a really good background information on R.G. Lee. He was born November 11th, 1886. He died 91 years later. He first preached Payday Sun- Sunday in 1919. And it actually wasn't a sermon. It was a, pra- it was a, a Bible study for a prayer, a prayer meeting. And... Um, one of his uh, church members came up and said, hey, you really ought to make this into a full-length sermon. And so we did, and subsequently preached it 1,275 times. Is, is, I've, heard, I've seen different numbers, but that's the official number we're going to go with. So almost 1,300 times. He was first the pastor of First Baptist Church in New Orleans, and he was there for about three years won several hundred people to Christ into the thousands. And then he moved to a church in South Carolina. And then he landed at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, where he pastored there for 33 years. And then he had a, some a, almost 20-year itinerant ministry after he retired from the pastorate. And if I'm not mistaken, he actually preached this message here many, many years ago. So that's a scary thought. Hopefully your memories are not very good at this, at this time. So I want to start the way he started. And so I'm going to simply read to you his introduction. 
and then we'll jump into the text. Payday someday. He died in 1974. I introduce to you Naboth. Naboth was a devout Israelite who lived in the town of Jezreel. Naboth was a good man. He abhorred that which is evil. He claved to that which is good. He would not dilute the stringency of his personal piety for any prophet. He would not change his heavenly principles for loose expediencies. And this good man loved God, his family, his nation. And he had a little vineyard which he was close to the summer palace of Ahab the king. A palace unique in its splendor as the first palace inlaid with ivory. This little vineyard had come to Naboth as a cherished inheritance from his forefathers. And all of it was dear to his heart. I introduce to you Ahab. The vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation. The worst of Israel's king, kings. King Ahab had, commanded of, had command of the nation's wealth and of the nation's army. But he had no command of his own lust and appetite. Ahab wore rich robes, but he had a sinning and wicked and troubled heart beneath him. He ate the finest food the world could supply. And his food was served to him in dishes splendid by servants obedient to his every beck and nod. And he had a starved soul. He lived in palaces sumptuous within and without, yet he tormented himself for one bit of land more. Ahab was a king with a throne and a crown and a scepter, yet he lived nearly all of his life under the thumb of a wicked woman, a tool in her hands. Ahab pilloried himself in the contempt of all God-fearing men as a mean and selfish rascal who was the curse of his country. The Bible introduces him to us in words more appropriate than these when it says, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up, and he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And Ahab made a grove... And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. I introduce to you Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of Tyre, and wife of Ahab, the king of Israel. A king's daughter and a king's wife, this evil genius at once of her dynasty and of her country. Infinitely more daring and reckless was she in her wickedness than was her wicked husband. Masterful. Indomitable, implacable, a devout worshiper of Baal. She hated anyone and everyone who spoke against or refused to worship her pagan god. As blunt in her wickedness and as brazen in her lewdness was she as Cleopatra, fair sorceress of the Nile. She had all the subtle and successful scheming of Lady Macbeth. All the adulterous desire and treachery of Potiphar's wife. All the boldness of Mary, Queen of Scots. All the cruelty and whimsical imperiousness of Catherine of Russia. All the devilish infamy of Madame Pompadour. Did I do that right? You don't know who that is either. And doubtless, all the fascination of personality of a Josephine of France most of which is bad in all evil women found expression through the painted viper of Israel. She had that rich endowment of nature which a good woman ought always to dedicate to the service of her day and generation. But alas, 
This adulterous daughter of an adulterous king of an adulterous people engaging with her maidens in worship unto Ashtoreth, the personification of the most forbidding obscenity, uncleanness, and sensuality, became the evil genius who wrought wreck, brought blithe, and devised death. She was the beautiful and malicious adder coiled upon the throne of the nation. I introduced to you Elijah the Tishabite. Prophet of God at a time when tens of thousands of people had forsaken God's covenant, thrown down God's altars, slain God's prophets with the sword. The prophet, knowing much of the glorious past of the new apostate nation, must have been filled with horror when he learned of the rank heathenism, fierce cruelties, and reeking licentiousness of Ahab's idolatrous capital. Holy anger burned within him like an unquenchable vesivius. He wore the roughest kinds of clothes, and he had underneath those clothes a righteous and courageous heart. He ate birds' food and widows' fare, and he was a great physical and spiritual athlete. He was God's tall cedar that wrestled with the paganistic cyclones of his day without bending or breaking. He was God's granite wall that stood up and out against the rising tides of apostasy of his day. Though much alone, he was sometimes attended by the invisible hosts of God. He grieved only when God's cause seemed tottering. He passed from earth without dying into celestial glory. Everywhere courage is admired and manhood honored and service appreciated. He is honored as one of earth's greatest heroes and one of heaven's greatest saints. He was a seer who saw clearly. He was a great heart who felt deeply. He was a hero who dared valiantly. And now with the introduction of these four characters, Naboth the devout Jezreelite, Ahab the vile human toad who squatted befoulingly on the throne of a nation, Jezebel the beautiful adder beside the toad, and Elijah the prophet of the living God, I bring you this tragedy of Payday Sunday. And the first scene of the tragedy of Payday Sunday is the real estate request. (gasps) Could you imagine an hour and 15 minutes? Wow. I must say, it might be obvious that he graduated magnum magnum cum laude. He did. And he also was extremely proficient in the Latin Latin language and uh, truly a brilliant man. It's reported that once um, uh, one of the pastors of Bellevue, um, Adrian Rogers, was sitting with R.G. Lee and said, Oh, that you could take your brain and, and insert it into my head. And R.G. Lee quipped to him, uh, that would be like placing a grand piano in a hall closet. <laughs> and, and, I, and I suspect uh, uh, Dr. Adrian um, probably wondered if he wasn't half, halfway being truthful there. So let's get back to, to, to doing me because <laughs> I can't. Uh, 1 Kings 21, the first scene. Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite and the vineyard in Jezreel close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. This is 1 Kings 21, verse 1 and following. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it was close to my palace. In exchange, I give you a better vineyard. Or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. So Naboth had a vineyard, and it was close to Ahab's summer palace. And this, this king Ahab, as wicked as he was, forgot all that he had and desired this man's vineyard. 
He looked out and he said, you know, this, this is a place that I want as my own. And I think if you'll go through the history of kings, you'll find that oftentimes those in very high places expend a lot of energy on menial things. Uh, not to, to, to bring up a sore subject, but if you saw the, the special the other day on Monica Lewinsky, did anybody see that on TV? Uh, it was an interesting thing that, that, that the President of the United States would, 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 would get into such uh, strange circumstances... And, and, and his advisors and the, the secret service, the people who watched over him were just in disbelief that he would risk so much on, on, on such a, a trivial relationship. And so it is like that with kings and it is like that with people who often feel as though they are above the law or often feel as though they, they, they are at the height of, 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 of their, their discipline. And so they don't worry about anybody else, but it's the small things that often take them down, as we will see here. So Naboth had this vineyard, and this vineyard was not just a vineyard. It was passed on from his father. It was passed on from his father's father, and for generation after generation, this was his family's land. Biblically speaking, he was not allowed to sell it because in the Old Testament, well, because in the, the Old Testament law, God said that this land is yours forever and it shall never be sold. And so even if Naboth wanted to sell it, he couldn't sell it because he was a God-fearing man. Even though he was offered a great price of money, really whatever price he said it was worth, or land that was better than that land, he could not sell it because Naboth was a man who wanted to honor God. Now it's possible that he had some uh, family memories. I'm sure he remembered his grandfather out pruning grapes or his father walking through the, the vineyard and, and talking and teaching this, this man. And I'm sure Naboth had done the same with his son and was imagining the day when he would no longer be there, but his sons would be taking care of the vineyard. And so when King Ahab said... Let me have this land. Naboth said, no. You may not have the land. And so this great king's response was rather peculiar. Verse 4, he went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His lip would have puffed out. His servants would have come in and said, look, I made you a, a sandwich. And he would, have, he would have just, with no energy at all, just said, get out. I'm too brokenhearted to eat. Now, I want you to see the picture here. This is a king who had everything, the king of Israel. This was his summer home that he was talking about. And simply because he could not have the small vineyard next to him, he was pouting, acting not like a king, but acting like a child. Not acting like a ruler, but acting like a, a middle schooler with a temper tantrum. And he sat on his bed, laid on his bed, pouting and moaning and whining. And the scripture tells us, verse 5, that his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, probably in a whiny voice, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And then Jezebel, verse 7, his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. 
I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I want to say this nicely, but, but R.G. Lee says it not as nicely. But he basically says, woe to the man who's controlled by a wicked woman. Many a man has been brought to his knees and has been destroyed because of a wicked woman. That's not in any way a remark about women, because notice the adjective, a wicked woman. Many a man has been brought down because he simply did whatever the woman said to do. I will also say that many a woman has been brought down because of a wicked man. It does go both ways. But in this instance, this woman, Jezebel, comes in and says, Get up. Stop your pouting. Act like a king. You want the vineyard? I'll get you the vineyard. And so Jezebel has a plan. I suspect that she had a plan for everything. I suspect that Ahab really wasn't the king over Israel. He was the, the, uh, the queen's aide. He simply had a position but as we see, Jezebel really called the shots and made the rules. And oh, the dangers of a nation who is led by a wicked ruler. It's even more dangerous when the ruler is simply being led by a wicked wife. He's a puppet in her hands. And so, verse 8. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and placed the seal on them and sent them to the elders of the nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. And in those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So her grand plan was this. She wrote letters in in Ahab's name. He knew this, yet he didn't care because as a weak leader, he simply said, I'll just let my wife handle it. Have you ever said that? Let's not go there. He, while he was in his palace, his wife Jezebel went to work. She wrote these letters and then she sent them to the nobles it, uh, in, in Naboth's town. And the letters said this. Declare a holy fast. And in this holy fast, I want you to have Naboth sit in the seat of honor. And then I want you to sit two scoundrels next to him. One on his right and one on his left. And while this, discussion, while this conversation is going on, I want the two of them to accuse him of blaspheming both God and the king. Now what's crazy about this? Number one, he didn't say a word against the king. And number two, he didn't say a word against God. In fact, Jezebel could care less about God. Her God was Baal. In fact, I suspect that this is why she was so excited about doing this to Naboth. Because she knew that Naboth's reason for, de for declining the offer of selling the vineyard was not based on simply sentimental reasons. It was based on a faith in God. And Jezebel hated anything and everything of God. She worshipped at the Astropole. She worshipped the God of Baal. In, in fact, her, her, uh, her entire life 
is, is licentious and lascivious and all those other words that we don't use anymore, but they're, they're, they're descriptive words of an evil, wicked heart. You have to know that when we today speak of, 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 a, uh, of a wicked woman by using this woman's name, she was one wicked woman, right? Have you ever said of somebody, well, she's just a Jezebel. Don't say it, don't admit it out loud, baby. But, but have you ever thought to yourself, oh, she's a Jezebel. Among church leadership circles, we will often say there's a Jezebel spirit, which is a deceiving, conniving, uh, sensuous spirit. And so it's nothing good. When she sent these letters, she fully knew that Naboth's days were numbered. So they had the holy fast and they put Naboth in his place. And certainly when he left that morning, he would have said to his wife, I'll be back, don't worry, this is just all a misunderstanding. Certainly he said to his children, don't worry kids, there's nothing to be afraid of. I've done nothing wrong. To be said that he was placed in a seat of honor really means that he was put on trial and he knew that he was answering for something. When he got there, the scoundrels lied and accused him of blaspheming God and blaspheming the king. And so the response of that accusation was stoning to death. Now, I won't recount for you the way Lee puts it, but it's rather graphic because if you can imagine what it would like to be stoned, he was drug out into the, into the middle of the street and these large stones were brought and he began to be pelted over and over and over and his body was crushed and his, and his, and his, his, uh, his head was broken open and there were all kinds of, of, of grotesque uh, 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 pictures that could be written about the, the death of this man. But it wasn't just him. They first killed Naboth with stoning, and then they went and got his children. And they, they brought his boys out into the street. The Bible tells us this in 2 Kings. And when they put his boys into the street, they stoned the boys as well. So Naboth was stoned and killed, and his children were stoned and killed. Why? Because if his children stayed alive, they would receive the inheritance. They had to ensure that the land would be given to the king. And the way it was given to the king was, there's no one to inherit the land. Therefore, it is free reign for the king to have. So all of this took place. And in verse 15, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he had refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard this, that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. He called his chariot driver, Jehu, who was known to be with the best and the fastest driver. He got in the chariot and he immediately rushed down to walk through the vineyard. When he got to the vineyard, and as he walked through the vineyard, he would have noticed the blood of Naboth and his sons. And as he was looking, he saw something that shocked him and sent fear into him. He didn't see a wild animal. He didn't see the dogs that licked the blood. He didn't see an army that had come to fight him. He saw one man, Elijah. And when he saw the face of Elijah, fear 
struck him to the very heart of who he was because he knew who Elijah was and he knew what Elijah was there for. Therefore, And in fact, in verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. And Elijah replied, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, God says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut you off from Ahab's every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Bashah, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord said, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab. Verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself. I will not bring the disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Three years. Three years later, Ahab was still alive. Did God not see the tragedy with Naboth? Was God blind? Was he deaf? Was he simply not present? Was there no justice? What Elijah essentially said was this. Ahab, there will be payday someday. It may not be today, and it may not be tomorrow, but someday you will account for everything that you've done here today. Three years later, Ahab was called or was, was roused to go fight with Jehoshaphat in Ramoth Gilead. And he devised a plan that he would dress in, in armor that was not that of a king's armor. And as he was in the chariot on his way to battle, an arrow was shot randomly and pierced through his armor, and it caused him to die. Three years later, he died. What you should know, though, is this, that the mercy of God was given to him for three years. And yet at the end of the day, he paid for his sin. And this is the message today, that we think that we can escape God's justice. We think that we can do whatever we want and that God is somehow going to forget that he's a holy God and that we're just going to slip in under the radar. But friends, I will tell you today that there will be a payday someday. For every soul that has ever lived. This is why the scripture says, Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. This is why we don't have to worry about getting even. Or we don't have to worry about making sure that, that we settle the score. Because God's justice is greater by far than our justice could ever be. And don't you think that for those three years as Ahab was waiting. That every time he heard a dog bark, he looked around. Don't you think that the guilt that he carried upon himself wondering is today the day? I will say to you, that's the worst kind of punishment possible. It would better to be dead than to think that at any moment payday is coming. Wouldn't you agree? There's a weight of guilt that we cannot escape. I was talking to 
uh, a, a friend of mine, and, and he was mentioning how uh, several of his friends live in constant fear. Constant fear. They wake up in fear and they go to sleep in fear and their life is, is very secluded and very curtailed because of the fear that they carry and there's no way, that's no way to live. But what about Jezebel? If Ahab paid after three years, what about Jezebel? By the way, R.G. Lee tells the story when he was in New Orleans he had a, a regular person who would send him letters because R.G. Lee was on the radio and his sermons went out and he was, he was a public figure. And somebody called himself, the, who, who only called himself the captain of the kangaroo court would send him regular letters. And these regular letters would, would poke and would prod. And he was a, a, a devout atheist and he still wanted to, to engage R.G. Lee. Well, Mr. Lee got a, uh, Reverend Lee got a, uh, a call from the hospital, and the hospital nurse said, would you come to the hospital? We have somebody here who, who needs you. He's dying, and he will only speak uh, to you. He wants, he wants to see you. And so he said, well, certainly. He got himself cleaned up. He went to the hospital, and he said, who is this man? And the nurse said, he only will say that he is, he won't give us his name. He'll only tell us he is the captain of the kangaroo court. And so when Lee went to the bedside, the bed was by itself. This man must have been a snake. He must have been uh, uh, just, just extremely difficult to deal with because you had beds everywhere, yet he was secluded and by himself. And as Mr. Lee sat down, he grabbed his hands, and this captain of the kangaroo court said this. He said, Preacher, I know that you have young people who listen to you. This was a man 20, 21 years old saying this. He said, I know that you have an audience that is broad and that is wide. I want you to tell them something for me, preacher. I want you to tell them something. I want you to tell them that the devil always pays in counterfeit currency. Always. And R.G. Lee sat there until this man died. As soon as he died, the nurse said, preacher, come over here. Come over here, quickly. He said, why? He said, I need to wash your hands. You were holding wicked hands. And I think that she was in, in, inferring not just wicked in terms of a spiritually wicked, but also a man who had some type of very bad disease. And so he wanted to warn people, which I suspect is probably where this message was rooted, that the devil always pays in counterfeit currency. Always. 20 Years after Naboth's death, Jezebel was in her castle or in her palace. And she heard the chariots and she heard the footsteps of Jehu who was on his way to see her. And as we find in 2 Kings chapter 9, if, if you go back and read that, you'll find this there. He got to the palace and Jezebel opened up the window and called out to him below and said, Are you here for good things or are you here for bad things? Jehu simply set up to her, spoke to where the people in her room could hear, whoever's for me, let them be known. Some of the servants came and looked out the window and said, that would be us. He said, then push her down. And in just a few seconds, they pushed Jezebel out of the window and she fell down and splattered onto the streets below. He then drove his chariot over her, parked it, went inside and had a meal. 
And as he was eating the meal, he finally decided, y'all go take care of that woman, Jezebel. And they came back and said, well, the dogs have already taken care of that. But get this, the only thing left of this woman is her head and her hands and her feet. Not even the dogs would eat those wicked parts of this woman. And if you think of the parallel, the hands that shed blood, the feet that were quick to defile God, and the head that had all of, this wicked, wicked, all of these wicked plans devised within her. God tells us, and it's true, if you dig a pit, you will fall in it. If you roll a stone, you'll be hit with it. A man will reap what he sows. And for anyone who thinks that they can live a life apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ may have a good life. They may enjoy pleasures. They may enjoy uh, uh, fun. They, they may enjoy a life that, that is satisfying. But the word of God will always come true because God has written his own justice in the nature of of the universe or in the in the DNA of the universe. The way God designed the world to work is that what you reap you will sow and if you reap if you if you or what you sow you will reap. If you sow a life that is devoid of God, you will one day face that very same God in the day of judgment. There is no escaping that. You can pretend it's not going to happen. You can hope it's not going to happen. But every single human being will stand before the just creator of the world. And they will have to give an account for their life. And the only thing that will save them is if they proclaim that Jesus Christ has been their Lord. And interestingly enough, we don't, do, we don't have a chance to do that after we step into eternity. It's before we die that we've got to make this call and make this choice. But you know, it's not just it's not just a scary thing to know that payday is someday. But it's a sad thing. It's sad in that so many people live a life that is less than the life that God has planned for them. What did Jesus say? He said, I've come that you might have life and have it most abundantly. How could we expect to have the life that is abundant life apart from the creator and the author of life? How can we expect to have all that God has intended for us without the God who is intended for us? To live a life without God is to live a life that is, that is really just a facade. It's a life that is short-lived and compared to eternity, a life that is truly wasted. So the appeal to you today is this. Recognize there is payday someday. Now, I want to mention to you, and, and R.G. Lee didn't say this, but I think it's worth noting because our culture today won't stand for this kind of message. Our culture today is offended that you would dare possibly say that there is a God who is just and that just God will reckon, he, 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 will, he will settle the score, if you will, and, and the, the, the accusation is he must be a mean God if he's so worried about that, but nothing could be farther from the truth. How can a God who gave his only begotten son to suffer the punishment and the wrath of your sin and my sin be an unjust or an unloving God? 
How could a God who gave his only begotten son so that you and I might not perish but have everlasting life be a God who is not worth following? How could he have any accusation other than a God who is kind and merciful and full of grace and full of chance after chance after chance? The only way a person will experience the payday of sin is if they reject all of the gracious offers, today included, of the grace and the mercy of God. So no one goes to hell because God sends them to hell, uncaringly and unwillingly. No, we are separated from God for all of eternity because we've rejected God indefinitely and continually. He chases us, and yet we spur His salvation. And so I would say to you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, yes, this should scare you. It should cause you to tremble. And every time a dog barks, you should worry what's on your heels. Because there is a God who is just. There is a God who laid the foundations of the earth. And in those foundations is a guarantee that one day we will all give an account for every idle word we've spoken, for every action we've ever done, and for every uh, thought that has ever entered into our head. But the good news, that it's by grace that we are saved through Christ Jesus. It is as if we're in the ocean drowning, barely able to keep our head above water, and yet God has rowed out in a lifeboat, and he sent us a ring, a Savior, And we have to reject that Savior in order for us to have no hope. But it's the pride of a human heart, isn't it? The only reason not to trust in Jesus is the pride that says, I don't need him, I don't want him, I'll do it on my own. My friends, I want to tell you that today, I've been a follower of Jesus for 30 years. I was 15. I would not trade one single second of my life. If I could go back and change it, make it earlier, I would do that. Because every day without Jesus is a day that is lived without it being its fullest possible life. Not a life without trouble. Not a life without, without suffering. Not a life without questions. Not a life without, without enemies but a life that is given by the author of life. And that, my friends, cannot have a price tag on it. So today, have you trusted Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you can walk away. Just know that according to God, there is payday someday. But the mercies of God calls you to himself today. Why turn them away? Let's pray together. Father, our prayer today is that the truth as found in this passage would penetrate into our heart of hearts. God, I pray that your mercy and your grace would be so evident before us. Father, I pray that today not one soul in this room would reject you. Lord, I pray that today we would find ourselves in the palm of your hands. 
And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, as we sing our hymn of invitation, most of you are born again. Most of you have a relationship with Christ. But you know, if you don't, today is the day for you to come to Christ. Won't you do that? You can do it right where you are. Simply, simply say to God, God, I know I need you. And so I give you my life and I, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Today, if, uh, if you want me to pray with you, I'd love to do that. If there's another decision you want to make, I want to invite you simply to respond to him as he calls you. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.